Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be speaking with global health leaders from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention about the global health impacts of COVID-19 and the agency's response. To address this are Dr. Barbara Marston, a CDC International Task Force lead and a member of IDSA's Global Health Committee, and Dr. Nancy Knight, CDC's Center for Global Health Director of Global Health Protection. Thank you both for being with me. Dr. Knight, I'd like to start with you. What is CDC's role in global health security to prevent, detect, and respond to disease threats? We live in a highly mobile and interconnected world where the impact of health threats reach farther than ever. We have seen this in previous outbreaks like Ebola and Zika, and we are seeing this on an even larger scale now with the COVID-19 pandemic. CDC's investments to improve global health security have laid the foundation to rapidly and effectively prepare for emerging infectious disease threats. CDC builds and strengthens core public health capacities in partner countries around the world. Through this work, we are constantly preparing for novel disease threats, no matter where they start or what causes them. From our decades of domestic and global public health experience, we know that every country needs core public health capacities in order to effectively prevent, detect, and respond to new and re-emerging infectious disease threats. And so this is really where we have focused our global health security work. And since its launch in 2014, CDC has been a key implementing agency for the U.S. government in the Global Health Security Agenda, or GHSA, that is focused specifically on this. CDC has staff that are stationed in more than 60 countries around the world, working every day with our in-country partners to to address public health priorities and to increase the health security both there and at home. We are working with other countries, with international organizations, with non-governmental organizations and the private sector in order to better prepare and protect people from the threat of infectious diseases, including COVID-19. Through these collaborations, many countries are now much better prepared to prevent, detect, and respond to outbreaks than they were several years ago. At the same time, we're also recognizing that there's still much work to be done. While we have seen and continue to see progress in partner countries where we work and have invested, we know that building robust and efficient public health systems does not happen overnight. Based on our monitoring of improvements, we know that as we entered 2020, Partner countries had improved rapid response to disease threats through our focus on training field epidemiologists. These disease detectives are the boots on the ground to investigate outbreaks at their source. Our partnerships also developed effective public health emergency operation centers and helped partner countries to have a greater ability to identify priority pathogens through improved laboratory testing capabilities. All of these have been critical this year in the COVID response. I think it's important to highlight that these improvements in public health capacities and systems are not specific to any one disease. We know that partner countries have effectively identified and contained a variety of serious disease outbreaks in recent years, keeping them from developing into more widespread outbreaks. We've seen meningitis in Liberia, Marburg virus in Uganda, multidrug resistant tuberculosis in India, and vaccine preventable diseases, including measles and pertussis in Pakistan, as well as diphtheria in Vietnam. The response time to these was effectively decreased from months and weeks to days. These outbreaks were stopped at their source and lives were saved. 
Encouragingly, our partner countries are now actively applying these same capabilities that they have built through CDC's global health work to be able to detect cases of COVID-19 and to take actions to stop its spread. One example that I would like to talk about is our Field Epidemiology Training Program, or FETP, that I mentioned earlier. Modeled on CDC's successful domestic epidemic intelligence service program, the FETP has trained more than 18,000 people around the world who work to track, contain, and eliminate outbreaks. We recently conducted a survey of field epidemiology training programs. Across 65 training programs, we found that they are extensively involved in countries' COVID-19 responses. The trainees, these are the people who are still enrolled and are in the midst of their training program. These trainees in 85% of the programs are involved in the COVID response. And graduates who have completed the program, 100% of these programs have graduates that are involved in the COVID response. Let me just say that again, graduates from 100% of these programs are actively involved in responding to COVID-19 all around the world. When we dove deeper and looked to see exactly what they're doing, we found that this workforce of disease detectives is involved in all aspects of countries' responses, including the investigation of COVID-19 cases and contacts, screening for COVID at borders and points of entry, developing risk communications, conducting data collection, as well as providing overall response coordination at the district, country, and regional levels. This return on our investment is huge and it is proving critical to countries all around the world in the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you for your insights, Dr. Knight. Dr. Marston, moving on to you now, how has the global response to COVID-19 been able to leverage CDC's infectious disease work and expertise? That question is pretty straightforward in that essentially all of CDC's more than 60 years of international work has probably contributed to the world being much better prepared than we would have been you know, otherwise. But maybe I could highlight um, three sets of activities that I think have been very directly relevant to uh, response. The first set is the set that Nancy just described. So um, to me, in, um, in leading the International Task Force, I can really see the influence of the global health security work that's been done. Um, and because there were ongoing activities in so many countries, it was possible for countries to pivot very quickly to a focus on coronavirus very soon after the outbreak was recognized. And that meant that the response could start um, in earnest before specific coronavirus resources were available. So the things that Nancy mentioned about um, building emergency response capacity, I've personally been very impressed overall with how well the responses in many of these countries have been coordinated. And then I think what she mentioned about the field epidemiology training programs, we are really seeing that um, the importance of the role of these trainees and graduates in leading the response. I think another thing that we're seeing in the response is the effective reporting of case numbers into global surveillance systems really from most of the countries in the world. And that's not something that we should take for granted. It's been facilitated by these ongoing efforts building laboratory and surveillance capacity. And that's not to say that the counts are perfect, but the data really have been extremely useful for tracking the epidemic. I think beyond those GHSA activities, a second set of critical activities that are being leveraged is uh, CDC's global work in, in influenza. And so the influenza division supports work that ties into and is really part of that uh, health security set of activities. But of course, they have a specific focus on laboratory testing for flu and tracking of flu cases. And 
these activities are um, crucial for influenza control. That's something we really pay attention to um, at CDC is the risk of flu. But because coronavirus is also a respiratory virus, those flu activities are really specifically relevant to the coronavirus response. Um, particularly early in the response, the sites that were able to test for flu were also very quickly able to adapt to testing for the novel coronavirus. And we've also adapted a number of the platforms where we track flu and do evaluation and research activities related to influenza. We've been able to adapt those platforms to gather information about the new virus. The third set of activities I want to highlight is laboratory capacity that's been built through PEPFAR. That's the U.S. President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, the large U.S. government response to the global HIV and TB epidemics. And I mentioned that the lab capacity for flu was what we tapped initially, but over time, uh, different diagnostic tests have been developed for the coronavirus, and many of these newer tests can be done using platforms and capacities that are similar to what's used for diagnosis of HIV and TB. And the lab capacity that's been built through PEPFAR over more than 15 years is an incredibly important starting point for use of these newer tests. I know as one example, um, in Zambia, 17 of 24 PEPFAR-supported labs are able to provide COVID-19 testing, and these labs are serving as primary sites for COVID testing in the country. In March, um, CDC received the first tranche of congressionally appropriated global COVID-19 resources through the Coronavirus Preparedness and Response Supplemental Appropriations Act of 2020. And this supplemental provided CDC with $300 million for global disease detection and emergency response activities. And so we're, we're leveraging all of the activities I just mentioned as we program these COVID-specific resources. Thank you, Dr. Marston. As the lead for infectious disease outbreak response, Dr. Knight, how have CDC's global health experts been able to translate their global experience to the domestic response? Clearly, this pandemic is the greatest public health crisis that our nation and the world has confronted in more than a century. CDC's commitment to stopping the global spread and, and this commitment really, it requires a whole of CDC response that brings together our unique expertise in both domestic and global public health that we have developed over the decades. Those core public health capacities that I talked about earlier, having effective and resilient public health emergency response systems that include risk communications, laboratory networks, like the examples that Dr. Marston mentioned, disease surveillance systems, and a capable public health workforce. This is our bread and butter at CDC. This is what we do in partner countries through our leadership role in U.S. government flagship global health initiatives, several of them ones that Dr. Marston mentioned, the PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, the President's Malaria Initiative, the Global Polio Eradication Initiative, and the Global Health Security Agenda. These are the same core functions and capacities that CDC focuses on domestically as well with states and local territories. CDC's domestic mandate to protect America from health, safety, and security threats as the nation's health protection agency is really what makes CDC's global health security work and this global expertise so unique and so valued by partner countries and organizations that we work with around the world. As an agency, we regularly pivot our experts that are involved in the agency's global programs along with this constellation of unique experience and expertise in order to support 
and inform our domestic priorities, including now um, as the agency's domestic COVID-19 response that has already involved so many of CDC's global experts as well. So personally, I've been really proud to be able to work alongside my global health colleagues, as well as my domestic health colleagues at CDC to bring this collective expertise to bear on controlling the COVID outbreak here in the United States. One thing that has really stood out to me in this has been how we have used this combined expertise to be able to inform the domestic approach specifically around COVID-19 hotspots. So for example, from the global experience in leading the implementation of many aspects of, of PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief around the world, we, we have this unique experience in looking at data um, in the case of PEPFAR and HIV from this broad global epidemic level, an epidemic that has an estimated 38 million people currently infected with HIV. And we look at that at that global level, but also right down to the local or the community level. We identify hotspots. We look at risk factors for transmission. We look at people who are most at risk and we identify mitigation measures and we work with local leaders, those local public health experts around the world, those local elected officials, the leaders that are within the communities, particularly in the churches and the schools, and we act on that in real time. We adapt our interventions that we are implementing based on emerging data um, of, of the HIV outbreak in these locations. So I've been talking about this around PEPFAR and around the global HIV epidemic, but these exact same steps are the ones that we are also taking in the COVID pandemic here in the United States. We're looking at the data we're identifying places where the outbreak has higher rates of new cases, higher positivity rates, and we're focusing our efforts. For me, having worked internationally with CDC for more than a decade, using this kind of an approach of focusing on controlling the global HIV epidemic from that big picture level down to the granular level. Um, I was in South Africa, and, and when I was there, we in the Ministry of Health called this particular approach focusing for impact. With this kind of experience, for me and many of my global CDC colleagues, it's really clear how we can contribute to the domestic mission of CDC of addressing the COVID hotspots. Back in mid-July, I was able to serve as team lead and to join colleagues from two other domestic agencies, um, from ASPR and FEMA, as well as our CDC career epidemiology field officer, who's based at the Alabama Department of Public Health, as part of a mission to work with our state and local counterparts to address a COVID hotspot. And I and my team focused on Huntsville, Alabama. We met with the public health officials um, there and the response experts. We met um, with both the state and local level. We met with elected officials at the local level, with healthcare organizations, representatives from the school systems, um, community-based organizations, faith leaders, as well as representatives from the local business community. And together, we identified steps that had been taken already to be able to control the outbreak locally, as well as really um, dove into the barriers that still existed and into potential solutions, both those that cut across the national level all the way up to the state level. So again, this is not dissimilar to our global experiences, 
with other serious epidemics and outbreaks. As another example, our global rapid response team is being utilized domestically for CDC's response. This team uh, was quickly mobilized early in the COVID outbreak to support the increased domestic needs. As of the end of August, more than 200 staff who have been on call for the global rapid response team have been deployed to support our domestic COVID response. They have gone to 39 states, including tribal nations and Washington, D.C. They've gone to three territories and to work in the Emergency Operations Center. The Global Rapid Response Team's subject matter expertise that has been used to support the domestic COVID-19 response has spanned across epidemiologists, health communication specialists, laboratory scientists, and experts in management and operation as well. And lastly, just to mention that CDC's decades of global experience, the unique relationships with partner countries that we have all around the world, it really helps to inform and to cross-pollinate the domestic work that we do with states, with local officials, with tribal communities and territorial governments and local organizations to help build capacities in addressing the outbreak. Dr. Knight, thank you for that thorough answer and a great segue into our next question for Dr. Marston. Are there lessons learned from other countries that can inform the response in the U.S. or in other nations? Every health emergency is different, and every time we respond, we learn and get better. And so the, uh, the learning that happens between countries is really critical to making this progress. That's particularly important with a new pathogen like this when there's so much to learn about how it's transmitted and how it can be um, controlled. Um, the information sharing is facilitated, you know, in the, in the countries where we have a presence, we have a very close relationship with the ministries of health and government, and, um, and we have ongoing communications in those contexts, but we also maintain relationships in countries where we don't really have a staff presence, for example, through communications with the public health agencies in those countries and regions, you know, basically the, um, the CDC equivalents in those areas. And so we've, um, We've shared information with and learned from countries all over the world um, in that context. Uh, for example, early in the pandemic, when transmission was confined largely to Asia, there was a tremendous amount of learning that helped inform the response elsewhere. Um, we learned a lot about asymptomatic infection and transmission from experiences with the cruise ship outbreak in Japan. We learned a lot about control efforts from countries that were affected early on. Um, one example, the overall response you know, in Singapore has been uh, quite intense and generally very effective, but they had an issue with cases occurring in migrant worker populations because it wasn't possible for those groups to follow the, um, the general guidance that had been issued. And that situation really highlighted how important it is to consider adaptations to guidance and control activities that might be needed for specific at-risk populations. Um, we've been tracking various control measures and mitigation activities in various countries. Uh, just today, we were um, reviewing uh, what different countries have done with school closures and with efforts to limit transmission in schools. On the laboratory testing side, we've had some very helpful communications um, with other countries about how they've employed and layered a variety of um, strategies over time. So one early example was the drive-through testing sites in Korea, but we've also learned a lot recently about other countries' approaches to expanding capacity and prioritizing testing to ensure that highest risk groups get the services that they need. 
And the lessons aren't all directly related to COVID-19. Some of the learning is about how to maintain critical public health programs in this context of COVID-19. Various groups have, have used models to understand what the potential impact of COVID would be on vaccination programs or control programs for malaria, TB, HIV. And those impacts were really potentially devastating. They included hundreds of thousands of um, possible excess deaths. And so we know that um, keeping these other programs going was really a critical activity. And that's something that countries have shared lessons back and forth about uh, quite extensively. For example, when, when movement is, uh, restrictions and lockdowns were first implemented in Africa, there were challenges for some patients getting to clinic visits for their needed HIV treatment. And that challenge was anticipated. And so one approach was to provide larger quantities of medications so that patients didn't need to return to the clinic as frequently. But there were other solutions that kind of came up as the situation presented itself, and that included getting passes to patients so that they could travel during lockdowns and educating law enforcement staff um, so they understood the importance of these patients getting to their clinics even during the lockdowns. And I know of a number of settings, including in um, Nigeria and Eswatini, in which HIV treatment clinics have not only maintained services, but have been able to continue to enroll new patients. And the same sorts of approaches are being uh, taken to try and help reduce the impact of COVID on other critical activities like malaria control programs and immunization campaigns. Thank you for sharing those efforts, Dr. Marston. Staying with you, what challenges and priorities do you anticipate as the world transitions to long-term response and recovery from COVID-19? Uh, well, there are going to be a lot of them. I think the challenges are going to be pretty massive. You know, we know it's going to be a changed world going forward in the short term. You know, we're all going to have to successfully you know, learn to coexist in this world with COVID, um, which means adaptations in so many parts of life, in schools, in workplaces, in restaurants, in social gatherings, and travel. One specific challenge that has been highlighted in the response, in this response, is the need for adequate quantities of um, certain supplies, so personal protective equipment for, um, for healthcare workers and laboratory supplies. And I think people have uh, talked about and started to implement some um, important approaches to this, including expanding the capacity for local production, developing reusable personal protective equipment, and, and probably something we really need to do is further enhance our systems for procurement and distribution of supplies globally. I think there's um, very good, good reason for optimism about vaccine development, but there will be critical challenges to, deliver, to delivering even um, very effective vaccines. So we'll need to ensure that information about vaccines is effectively communicated and that we can uh, figure out ways to target different groups that are usually targeted by existing vaccination programs. So specifically, most world vaccine programs these days target children, but to uh, successfully implement a um, a vaccine against SARS-CoV, the virus that causes COVID, will have to target adults of all ages. And we don't necessarily have the platforms for doing that. So that's going to be a, a very important challenge to address. As I mentioned a minute ago, we really need to ensure that our work on other critical global health programs continues and to figure out ways to adapt to this new normal, but continue immunization and programs to control malaria, HIV, and tuberculosis. And then I think something that's really a key challenge and a critical priority for CDC as the lead agency in outbreak response is to sustain the attention to public health. Even if we, um, you know, as we contain control of this pandemic, we need to continue to develop these capacities for prevention, detection, and response. Um, 
you have to do that in times of relative quiet so that you're you're really as ready as possible to um, to respond when when new situations arise. Excellent points, Dr. Marson. Thank you for your insight. The last question I'd like to direct to both of you, starting with Dr. Knight. The next emergency is a matter of when, not if. How are we better prepared now for the next one? When health threats strike, all countries need core public health capacities that we've talked about today to be able to effectively respond. These include the disease surveillance systems, operational public health emergency response systems and laboratories, and a capable public health workforce. Through the Global Health Security Agenda and through several other U.S. government global health programs that we've talked about, CDC has demonstrated clear improvements in core public health capacities in partner countries all around the world. Our partner countries' ministries of health have received CDC training and support for critical aspects of disease response, from things like building the public health workforce to enhancing laboratories, from community immunization programs to infection prevention and control practices, and from conducting disease surveillance to the overall management of an emergency response. Although we're proud of these accomplishments, as we've been discussing today, we know that there's a lot of work that still needs to be done, and we really just can't let our foot off of that accelerator. It's really important um, that the ongoing success of our global health programs has allowed us to develop very strong and mutually beneficial relationships with ministries of health and other partners in countries around the world as we work to further strengthen all of these critical core public health capacities. The global health work that we do, the expertise that we have, and the relationships that we have built have really laid laid the foundation for us and in many cases have helped to open the door for our collective efforts towards keeping the world safer from disease threats. CDC, as the nation's health protection agency with a mandate to protect America from health safety and security threats, we know that we must work both domestically and globally in order to actually achieve this mandate. Together, CDC's unparalleled expertise, our decades of both global and domestic experience and our robust international network that's comprised of leading public health organizations from around the world have really made us uniquely qualified to take on the future opportunities that exist and also those future challenges that we know we will face. I'll now turn over to Barb to um, hear her closing thoughts as well. Thank you, Nancy. And I just basically echo um, what you just said. I think, uh, you know, when you have a response, it helps accelerate certain aspects of um, building capacity. I can think of one specific example, which is um, the use of virtual platforms. So because of the risk to responders and the limitations on travel and movement restrictions, we've really um, made great use of online platforms for, um, for training and for communication. And I think that's something that's really going to pay off in the future. I think I like to reflect on my experience in the um, the 2014 Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And we always talk about the fact that building this capacity takes time. But part of the reason for that is um, you have to build trust and you have to make sure that all the involved stakeholders are really uh, understand the importance of public health efforts. And one thing that happens in a big uh, pandemic like this is that part is pretty easily achieved. You build trust as part of the response to this pandemic. And it's easy for people to appreciate the need for public health um, impacts since pretty much everybody in the world has been 
affected by this, um, by this pandemic. That said, I know we're going to need to work to maintain attention to public health priorities. It'll be important to, um, to ensure that countries have sustainable financing for preparedness, um, including, you know, through their finance ministries and by work with development banks and other global partners. And we'll also need to prioritize our own uh, USG efforts, the US government efforts. So I mentioned the $300 million we'd gotten in funding earlier. Uh, Congress has also provided an additional $500 million for global disease detection and emergency response activities. And those uh, funds will last a little longer. They take us into 2024 and they'll allow CDC to target um, efforts beyond the immediate pandemic response and I think help us to, um, to be better prepared for future epidemics. In programming that funding will continue the robust interagency coordination that goes on within the US government now and thinking about the geographic and programmatic priorities. Um, we're really grateful for that support and take very seriously our role in leading infectious disease outbreak response. We remain committed to working directly with our Ministry of Health counterparts to leverage the progress that we've made to date and to take you know, seriously the lessons we've learned from this ongoing response and really do hope to be, uh, to continue to improve our preparedness and translate our experiences to, um, to future epidemics. And I'll just end by saying we're also grateful for the opportunity to participate in this podcast. We really thank you for the opportunity to share with you and your listeners. And thank you, Dr. Marston. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Knight and Marston for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.